Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. As we move into the summer months, we will continue to share our thoughts and views through this podcast series, and we appreciate you joining us for our first post-Memorial Day podcast today. Heightened anxiety and a general feeling of uncertainty have been the hallmarks of the last several months, and we understand that you might have a lot to be concerned about. We are here to provide relevant information on how what's happening in the markets and the economy may impact you, your family, or your business in the coming months. In last week's episode, we discussed the potential for increased volatility as we move through this next phase of economic reopening. While the equity markets experienced a significant decline as the gravity of the coronavirus situation descended on American society, the markets have now enjoyed a significant rebound since the lows hit just a little over two months ago. One of the interesting dynamics that we have touched on during several of our podcasts has been the different dynamics of this rebound, and this recession for that matter, and squarely in the middle of that conversation is the performance of technology stocks, which are going to be the subject of this podcast. Why technology stocks? Well, let's take a step back to what has occurred over the last two decades to provide some perspective on the importance of this segment of the market and why there is so much emphasis put on understanding what will happen next with these stocks. No overview of tech can be considered complete without a quick history lesson on the dot-com bubble. Going back to the mid-1990s, the internet, or as it was referred to more often, the World Wide Web, was becoming a concept that more and more people were familiar with. While techies had been evangelizing the profound changes to the way people and businesses connect and share information for years, the democratization of the internet through dial-up services like Prodigy and America Online was beginning to create an awareness among non-tech-savvy users as well. Harnessing information on demand and creating connections through email and messaging services offered the introduction, but what really fueled the excitement around the internet was shopping. Of course, this is the front of the house view. The back of the house is a bit muddier. Sophisticated private equity investors took note of the surging interest in the internet and helped create a blueprint for tech entrepreneurs that fueled the boom. While much of investing typically focuses on building a company which can survive and then thrive, because of the nature of the incentives for early tech investors, the idea became to build a marketable brand by any means. And by any means, I really am referring to the massive amounts of marketing spend that these companies shelled out. And then to watch the company grow large enough that it could yield an astronomical valuation at the time of listing, at which point the investors could then sell their shares and move on to another opportunity. It was truly the opposite of private companies today, who raise round after round of capital and are in no rush to subject themselves to the whims of public investors. Being a loss leader in that environment meant you were probably doing something right, and the private equity backers weren't concerned about the company's 5, 10, or 15 years in the future, as long as the stock price went right up after the IPO. So who was buying these stocks once they became public? Well, a lot of people. Lower capital gains taxes spurred more Main Street investors, as did the internet-enabled online brokerages. 
You didn't need to call a guy sitting in front of a Quotron. You just logged in through your DSL and placed the trades yourself. People were buying stocks that were going to benefit from a societal change in how we lived, and more people than ever were able to do it. In addition, a lot of younger people who worked in technology saw their net worth grow exponentially, at least on paper, fueling consumption right into the end of that bull market. Of course, what happened next is well documented. The slide downward in sentiment from sell-side firms on Wall Street was reflected in one IPO after the next. The Fed was raising rates, and the liquidity pumping into the system was drying up. And it wasn't just the unprofitable internet companies that would feel the pain. Telecommunications companies had borrowed significant sums to build out the fiber optics infrastructure, which continued to pay social dividends for the next two decades. By the time the country was attacked on September 11, 2001, the dot-com boom was officially over. The NASDAQ index peaked on March 10, 2000 and wouldn't recover back to that level for 15 years. What about Main Street? Well, even for those investors who were not speculating in individual names, many had discovered the mutual fund vehicle as a way to garner exposure to the markets. Many mutual funds were overly exposed to technology and telecommunications stocks, and huge losses in these funds created skepticism amongst investors that the whole Wall Street game was not one a regular person could win. As a result, coming out of the bubble, investors began to shift their focus to areas that were easier to understand. Real estate investing in the United States grew rapidly in popularity as housing prices doubled from 1996 to 2006, with most of that increase coming in the years after the dot-com bubble burst. Cyclicals like energy and materials also gained momentum, as Chinese government-sponsored infrastructure projects demanded natural resources, and these sectors benefited from inflation in commodity prices. By the time Bear Stearns failed, financials were the largest sector in the S&P 500 index. So what has happened in the last decade? Well, technology grew up. The internet, that ethereal home for techies and worse in its early days, is now a part of everything we do. The four main industries that operate under the broad umbrella of technology are hardware, software, internet information, and telecommunications. But breaking that down to the next level, you've got sub-industries that didn't even exist in 2000. While hardware and software have been mainstays, and e-commerce has delivered huge hits and even bigger misses, remember Pets.com? Industries such as fintech, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, who would have thought 20 years ago we would have had refrigerators we could talk to, and maybe most importantly the cloud, there are a myriad of ways that technology touches almost all parts of both the business and consumer world. Technology has been the engine for growth, allows for greater efficiency and connectedness, and creates a more globally integrated world. It's hard to draw a line between where technology ends and other sectors start. Automobile manufacturing would not be the same without robotics, Companies initiating drug trials rely on technology to connect with ideal patients, and investment managers utilize machine learning to supplement or even supplant the traditional analytical process.
How has this maturation been reflected in the markets? Well, for one, in the vast outperformance of technology stocks, which tend to be relatively more expensive with fewer fixed assets and greater revenue growth. This has resulted in a huge divergence since the financial crisis between growth stocks and value stocks. Technology stocks, which include the technology sector, plus Facebook and Google, which are classified differently but reflect the same fundamental characteristics, now make up over 30% of the S&P 500 index. That's up from about 18% in 2009, and that growth has been at the expense of underloved sectors such as energy and consumer staples, as well as obviously financials. While it would seem that with all I've outlined, there is little risk in holding a large weighting in technology stocks, that would be a simplistic answer to the very often asked question of, are things different this time? Of course, technology is different. But just because the path to sector leadership has been different, it doesn't take concentration risk off the table. Many investors own not only broad index exposure, but they have compounded their exposure to technology stocks by owning individual names alongside this index exposure. Will these companies continue to perform well? There is no clear rationale on why they couldn't continue to perform, but there is also the threat that other, cheaper, less favored sectors will begin to do well too. With that comes the threat of rotation, and trimming past winners to fund the next round of winners is Portfolio Management 101. But one does not even need to extrapolate a rotation from winners to losers, which would be a rotation from growth to value in this environment, to be compelled to take some technology exposure off the table. Company-specific risks are always present. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, and Microsoft may be well-run, competitive companies, but they too can be faced with internal and external challenges that can sour the opinion of investors. Too much of a good thing can actually be a very bad thing. Just remember those mutual funds from the early 2000s. They were buying big positions in stocks that were doing great, until they weren't. Diversification and risk management can't always protect you from making bad investments, but they can protect you against overindulging in things that look really, really good. Thank you again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your Boston private team with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives by visiting bostonprivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're on our website. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you again next week from my home studio. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified.
This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.